I have a confession to make. It's kind of embarrassing, uh, but I have something I want to get off my chest. Um, I have a deviated septum. And, um, whew, well, that feels good to just say that, say it out loud. I hope you don't look at me differently now. Uh, there's a lot of shame and stigma that comes with it. Um, some of you are really worried right now. Let me tell you what it is, in case you don't know. It's the bone and cartilage that separates your nasal uh, um, passage. And mine is crooked. It's deviated. And I was doing some research. It's most frequently caused by impact trauma, such as a blow to the face. And that's what happened to me on a college water ski retreat. I had impact trauma of a blow to the face from someone else's face. We smashed heads on an inner tube behind a ski boat trying to knock each other off. Here is the, here is the treatment for a deviated septum. Within a couple of days, you have the option of having what looks like a long two-pronged tuning fork that goes up into your nose and they hold your head still and they snap it back into position. Now, I already see some of you shaking your head. That's what I thought. I thought, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to happen to me. So I asked my then-girlfriend, soon-to-be fiancé, although she didn't know it at the time, can you stand to look at this face this way for the rest of your life? She said yes, So I said no to the crazy tuning fork nose thing and never got it fixed. Now, I bring that up because of this. Septums aren't the only thing that deviate, right? All kinds of things get off course, veer off of how they should be, and people's faith deviate all the time. In fact, maybe more specifically is people's worship. What they worship, who they worship, deviates from what should be. Let me just show you this. You're going to be turning to a couple of different places this morning, but um, you can just stay where you are. But look at the wisdom in Proverbs chapter 4. By the way, um, as per normal, um, I will constantly be having you actually look at Scripture, so I really invite you to look at the Bible uh, as we go along. And um, every verse I ever bring up, if you forget to write this down or go, that was really good, where was it? It's already in your notes. The little blue references underneath each point are just a little Bible study in and of itself. Proverbs 4 says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve. To the right or to the left? Do you hear all this idea of staying the course, of being on the straight and narrow, of all these temptations that are going to come our way to deviate, to wander off, to veer off? Now, centuries later from when this was written, people have not educated themselves to a better place. They haven't invented technology to get to a better place. They haven't evolved to being any better than what was talked about in the book of Proverbs. This is in New Testament times from Second Peter. And he's describing uh, people who still need Jesus. He says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Listen to this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain 
from wrongdoing. I brought up the second Peter passage because Balaam is a perfect Old Testament illustration of what we're being warned about in Acts chapter 19. Balaam was a prophet, supposedly speaking for God, who loved personal gain more than he loved God. So just keep Balaam in mind as we sort of make our way through uh, Acts chapter 19. Let me give you one more straight from the mouth of Jesus. It's a one-verse little parable. He says, Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, and they will not be able. The narrow door, of course, is Jesus himself. What got him most in hot water and eventually killed is he said, I am the way to God, the only way to God. It's a narrow door. By the way, if people in your life think you're really narrow-minded and really narrow, that might be the biggest compliment you can possibly receive. If you're just being a jerk about it, that may not be a compliment. But it may be that you're holding fast to the words of Jesus. Strive to enter the narrow door. Now, why are so many people trying to do it, but they can't get it? Here's why. Because they fall for fakes and frauds. Fakes and frauds are out to tempt us all. And when they do, they deviate from the truth. So today we're going to see three versions of wandering worship, and you are going to recognize them in the Bay Area context you live in because they're crazy popular today. The context of where we're at is this is Paul's third road trip that he's taking, right? God has led him to these other places. This will be his last. This chapter tells us he spends two and a half years at Ephesus. And where is Ephesus? Well, remember Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. He says, do it in Jerusalem, and do it in Judea, and do it in Samaria, and do it in the uttermost part of the world. Where's Ephesus? The uttermost part of the known world. That's where we've made it to. Here's what's fascinating. This seemingly impossible command that Jesus said on the front end of this hey, small band of fishermen and tax collectors and some people here, I want you to take this thing to the entire world. We're now there. We're where Jesus told us to go, and here's why. Here's why we can take courage. God gives us the resources to do what he asks us to do. He says, do this, and he doesn't leave us alone. He resources us. But as we all know, those who've walked with the Lord for five minutes know that it's step by step. He resources us uh, little by little by little. In chapter 19, we have a demon-possessed beatdown of some exorcists. We have a book-burning revival. And then like something sort of out of a 1930s Chicago underground mob scene, we have this massive union riot going on. So it's kind of like an action scene, action-packed chapter. And through it all, what we see is God shining the light to salvation, the path to salvation through regular, ordinary people. So in all the action scenes that we're going to see, kind of the intensity rising up, all of that, we see God shining the path to salvation through everyday, normal, regular people. And these normal, everyday, regular people, they don't get, when, when ministry's going really, really well, they don't get prideful. And when ministry flat out fails, they don't bail on the whole thing. I mean, we've seen this through the book of Acts. 
is that there's highs and there's lows. There's giant numbers of people that come to Christ, and then some of those same people turn on the very one who's their pastor, and they get run out of town. So not getting too prideful when ministry is going well, not bailing when things are tough. All right, there's much in this chapter to just like encourage us and instruct us. So if you're not already, kind of like lean in, get on the edge of your seat, get ready to jot some things down. And I want you to start with this question. I want you to think of what is one of the most memorable demonstrations of power that you can think of. So just get that in your mind. What's, what's been something where you just go, wow, that was power on display. Okay, just get it in your mind. Um, I pose this question to myself. Any question I ever ask you, I try it on myself first. Here's the most powerful demonstration of power I've ever seen is people being transformed. Like what immediately popped in my mind as I thought about that, I thought about marriages that were absolutely on the brink of destruction. I thought about people who by their own admission had made the worst mess of their lives. They were in the worst prison that they for years could not figure a way out of. And individuals that were, had their hopes in the dumps, and God changed them. The book of Acts is a running commentary on life after life after life after life that's confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ and changed. Not every life. Many, many, many are confronted with the same Jesus, the same good news, the same path to salvation, the same offer of forgiveness and hope for a future, and they just walk away. They just reject it. But so many are changed. Think about Peter. Peter, the cowardly denier, to Peter, the bold lion of the early church. How about Saul turned Paul? Saul, the destroyer of the church, to Paul, the builder of the local church. I want you to know, in here, every single Sunday, we have people who showed up at our church. They were ready to take. They were ready to be takers. And right now, today, they are contributors to the local body joyful, in-the-spirit contributors functioning out of the way God designed them and made them to be. It's a powerful thing to look at it over and over. I want you to know if you came in here hoping for change, you're in the right place. Gathering where the Word of God is preached, gathering where the church is coming together to learn from and to celebrate and to remember and to talk about and sing about and profess our love, to remember the past as Lucas started us off, always be in prayer with thanksgiving, but always be ready to ask. You're in the right place, but here's the caveat. Here's the little like, but change comes from God's power and on God's terms. If you're in here hoping for change, you're in the right place. But know this, the change comes from God's power. It's not from within ourselves, And it comes on God's terms. And we're going to see that today. It's not just a narrow door, but it's a narrow path that God calls us to. Now, this is really hard to see in your handout, but on the screen, you can look at it maybe better. Can we dim the lights just so we can see the screen really well right now? What you're looking at right now is you're looking at the backside of Half Dome at Yosemite. And, um, and this is the, the sort of final uh, cables portion. And some of you may have done this. I actually did this trip with um, a couple dads from our church. And right here, there are cables marching up the, the top of, 
of this. And this is the final, steepest, most treacherous part of the journey. And what you see is a couple of people who are hiking up. Now, this isn't actually a picture of us, but we hiked this so that we would be on top of Half Dome to watch the sunrise. I highly recommend it, which means we hiked all night with little headlamps. So it would have looked really something like this, except there were a few more people. And we were hiking up, and this is sort of the last, final, treacherous part of hiking Half Dome. All right, you can bring the, the, the lights back up. Let me just tell you, this is a narrow, fixed route. On the way there, you can kind of get off track a little bit and all that. But when you get to the cables at Half Dome, the final part, it is a narrow, fixed route that's there. No one does this on their own. Everyone requires the help of gear. And if you deviate from this path, you die. If you deviate from the cables, you die. And there's a lot of sad stories and a lot of sad statistics that back this up. The last one who died climbing these cables was in 2019. Here's what's fascinating. She was in the cables. She wasn't even outside the path. She was within the path, but wasn't clipped in or anything and kind of freaked out, slipped, and just went tumbling to her death. Here's what I love. You see those two up there? Those are Christians. Christians with the light of truth, right? Like just being led on this path that they didn't create. They didn't put these cables here. They're following the path with their little headlamps. And here's what's awesome. Hard to see, but right over here, there's light coming. When, when you're in the dark like that, you've got your little light. You're thankful for it. There is a sunrise coming. And uh, it, it is one of my all-time favorite memories is being on the top of Half Dome to watch the sunrise. In fact, Chuck, thank you for putting that trip together. Chuck's sitting here, and he's our, uh, he was our guru of getting that trip going. Man, it was so fun. What a picture of the Christian. We have our little headlamp. We're doing our thing. There is a sunrise coming that we will not be able to ever forget. It'll be the return of Jesus in glory. Here's the central truth. Here's the whole sermon in one sentence. If you want to make sure you write this down, you should write this down. God's power and path get us to the top. It's God's power and path that get us to the top. Okay, so God has the power. He's committed to using it for your good. What must God overcome in every single one of us to get us to the top? It's our sin nature. The sin nature that resides in all of us. We're born into it. We didn't ask for it. Uh, it's just there. And to sin literally just means to miss the mark. Remember our word deviate, veer off, wander away? Sin is missing the mark, the target. And we all wander off course. And today is a sort of a, a call of warning to us, an encouragement to stay the course. All right, so three ways that our worship wanders. Um, Acts chapter 19, we're going to be in verse 1. Uh, I'm going to share with you these three things, and then with each of them is going to be a little um, trait of people. All human beings have these traits that cause us to deviate. So number one is people wander to religion. People wander away to religion. Verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What we're going to see in this chapter is um, there's a couple of varieties of religious people. Not all religious people are the same. Here's the first variety that we see right now. There's those with soft and open hearts. There are religious people who are seeking after God. They're looking for it in the wrong place in that they're probably trying to work their way to God or earn their way to God or pay back God for their sins. What we see here is a church doing religious things without the spirit of God. Whenever you have religious people gathered, there's 12 Jews here gathered, and wherever you see people gathered and doing religious kinds of things without the Holy Spirit of God, it isn't a real church. Just as a person doing religious things um, is sort of a a pre-Christian. But like being pregnant, you can't sort of be a Christian. They're they're a Christian or they're not. And what we witness in this moment is these 12 pre-Christians are sensitive and open to the things of God, but they're not yet in the family of God until God decides to sort of perform a little recreation of Pentecost here. Do you see it? And I love the way John Stott, John Stott's a commentator. He said this, um, he said that Pentecost caught up to them. So it's almost like a little reenactment of what went on. And God decided in this moment, I'm going to make it unequivocally clear that Paul, whatever you saw in these 12 men, you recognize they were devoid of the Holy Spirit. Their teaching was incomplete, but these are soft, ready men who are ready to receive the good news of Jesus. They're ready to submit to the path of salvation. So Paul opens his mouth, leads them to it, and when the Holy Spirit comes, it's really evident. What we know is that now they have the Holy Spirit. This is the seal. This is the the reassurance, the down payment. You are in Christ when you have the Holy Spirit. Just listen to these verses, 1 John. And by this we know that he abides in us. If your heart ever condemns you, if the enemy ever wants to tempt you away from the Lord, well, how do you even know you're really in? And by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That's stated positively. Listen to it stated negatively in Romans 8. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. These 12 Jewish men, an outpost outpost far away from Jerusalem, from where they probably would have grown up and heard from John the Baptist, are off doing religious things. They're open to the things of God, but they aren't yet Christians because they don't have the Holy Spirit, and then they have it. Talk about activate. Remember this whole book, this whole idea is that the Holy Spirit animates and activates us. Boom, go. This is how all things of God begin and sustain, through the Holy Spirit. So this path and power to get us to the top, it's the spirit of the risen Jesus residing with us. So by the way, a little hint, Um, many, many, many religious people are unconverted people. So when you hear religious sounding things um, and, and church attendance and those kinds of things, leaving them to go, good, checked off, I guess my job is done here, I don't need to be sort of, you know, just on the lookout in love for bringing people into the fold or for opening my, my mouth to the gospel. Many 
religious people are unconverted people. In fact, they may be some of the hardest people to share the gospel with. Here's why. They don't think they're sick. It's often very, very, very offensive to have a religious person who's deeply vested for years or generations in a religion to have someone come along and think that they are exposing, that, that they need rescue, that they need healing when they don't think that they're sick. So that's one type. Here's the second type. There are religiously devout people with hard and closed hearts. So not every religious person is the same. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This sounds like Paul. Is what he does. He goes around. He always starts with the synagogue where, where people are worshiping. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Paul keeps going to the Jews. I hope you see the long-suffering love of Christ in the Apostle Paul. Over and over and over, he goes to this people group and tries to win them. It's his countrymen. He was just like them, enslaved to performance, trying and trying and trying and trying. There's no peace and there's no hope in that. So he would come and try to reason with them. These didn't run him out on day one. They at least lasted three months. But what he saw was he saw hard and closed hearts. In Romans 1.16, Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. Listen to this. To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. I, that's a potent verse. That's worth memorizing. But thinking about that and then watching Paul's actions in the book of Acts, that's exactly what he did. He kept trying to give it to the Jews first. I mean, these were the chosen people of God. They had the commandments of God. They should have been the first in line to get in. Often religious people are the last to get in, the last to get it. Why? Because they have hard and closed hearts. You'll meet many, many people like this. They're marked by pride and stubbornness and unbelief and name-calling and slander. You see how it says they speak evil of the way? They speak evil of this Jesus and this guy, Paul. Why? Because it's so offensive to them. It undercuts their pride. This guy thinks he knows more than I do. I've been at it way longer. Here's problem with people number one that you can write down. People are born rebels. People are just born rebels. And so this, uh, this stubbornness, this unbelief, friends, this is all of us. We are all born rebels. We all start in this exact same place. That's why I think Paul had such compassion. I know what it's like to be you. I haven't forgotten that. The wonder of the gospel has kept my heart soft. I want you to turn to John 16 for a moment. We'll get back to Acts here in a second. But I want you to think about this with me. All resistance to God and the gospel is ultimately spiritual. So when someone says, you don't have good enough intellectual answers for me to become a Christian, I think you ought to study the intellectual, the intellectual hang-ups that your friend or coworker has. That's called apologetics, and it's wildly fruitful in your own life, and it's wildly helpful to be able to give a, a defense for the gospel to people. But ultimately, hear it, it's not intellectual. The Bible and God and the gospel are not intellectually bankrupt, and that's what's keeping people from the gospel. All resistance ultimately is spiritual. 
These people are in the flesh, and they hate the things of God. Paul is living out what Jesus said would happen in John 16, verse 1. Follow along. Jesus says this, I have said all these things to you, catch this, to keep you from falling away. I'm I'm saying all these things to keep you from falling away. It's going to get hard. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. That's what's happening to Paul. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. What's the context of all this? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is promising a helper is going to come to help us stay the course. But in the meantime, here's what's going to happen. The very people you're trying to win to me are going to kill you thinking they're serving God. Paul lived this over and over and over again. All right, verse 9 back in Acts. Here's one more thing. What's the result of Paul's obedience to being led away from the synagogue? By the way, how did Paul know whether he should stay one week, one month, three months? It's because he followed the the Holy Spirit's leading. The Holy Spirit will prompt you to stay and to go. You keep checking in. God, these people seem to be maybe open. And then maybe by month one or two, he's like, I don't know so much. By month three, they're openly there. He says, I'll stay and take the punishment. I've proven I'll do that. Or I'll pull away and I'll take my disciples with me. And so he does that. Here's what what the result is. Verse 9. He withdrew from them and took his disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of uh, Tyrannus. This continued for two years, catch this, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God moved him on from this synagogue that was resistant and opened up a really huge area of ministry for him. All right, that's number one. So religion isn't the only variety of wandering. Here's number two. The second variety is spirituality. There's a growing contingent of Americans, particularly young Americans, who identify as spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. 64 million people, or one in five Americans, according to the Atlantic, an article a couple of years ago. So being spiritual but not religious is, um, is not hip, new, or good. Uh, sometimes people, you know, they're doing that. They're kind of carving their own path. It's, it's as old as dirt. People have been doing this for a really, really long time. And just as God has designed fire and love for good, so long as it's enjoyed wisely, so spirituality is good as long as it is in relationship to God. Remember that there's power to change in this room, but it's on God's terms. We don't just come and get a quick little snippet and go, okay, I got it. And then we go do it ourselves like we do maybe the rest of our life. That's playing with fire. That's messing with love. God's given us love, fire, and spirituality with some parameters. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Pause. Um. At the, at the risk of being heretical, I had proposed at the start of this series in Acts to change the name of the book of Acts to call it the Acts of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. It's really the, act, it's really the Acts of God through the, through the Apostles. That's what's happening. That's what this sentence says. God was doing extraordinary miracles. How? By the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons 
that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. The evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, love those guys, uh, undertook to invoke the name of, of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in the man in whom was the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Let me summarize this with this. Dabbling in spirituality is dumb. Dabbling in spirituality is dumb. Every year, people die horrible deaths at Yosemite because they dabble in physics that they really don't understand. They have like a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of experience of like overcoming what they think they have their capabilities to do, and then it ends really, really bad. In fact, here's what's fascinating. On almost every occasion, I bet it's a true statement that they ignored written warnings to what they were doing. What you're holding in your Bible, in your hand is a Bible, either physical or digital. People ignore written warnings all the time. And they get away with it for a season. Sin is always fun for a season. But they're dabbling in things they do not understand. Let me take you back to 2011, Vernal Falls. Who's, who's been to the top of Vernal Falls before? Vernal and Nevada Falls, pretty awesome hikes right there. Three people are crossing over the barricade to get a closer look. It's a 317-foot waterfall. Two victims clung to each other as they slipped and were swept towards the waterfall. In an attempt to rescue the two from the falls, a man followed them over the edge after reaching for them and slipping himself. One of the three bodies was recovered two weeks after the accident. The other two were found months later near the falls in August and December. Now, this is one of many, many sad, stark stories that is a picture of what happens to people spiritually. It's the blind leading the blind, going off the edge together to their own death. And in spirituality, it's people dabbling with things they don't understand. Here's problem number two with people. People are ignorant and unaware of the enemy. Like children who know nothing about electrical currents, these seven sons show off their ignorance. They decide they're going to start trying to do the things that Paul did. It's working for Paul. Let's try it ourselves. Spiritual people who aren't in Christ are like demons in that they know of Jesus, but they don't submit to Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They're not on Jesus' team. In verse 17, God shows a little bit of how he works. Sometimes I think we think that um, God always works in shiny, happy ways, and so people will just be always drawn to it. Often God will do something, and it puts the fear of God in people. Verse 17, it says that he uses fear to wake these people up from all their wandering worship and to worship him alone. 
Part of how God stirs revival in us individually, corporately as a church and corporately as a people, is to be woken up to the bad things that go on apart from him. Here's what's so encouraging about this chapter. Just as spiritual, um, our religious people can be one to Christ, uh, so spiritual people can. Spiritual people can be one to Jesus Christ. They already know and they've already experienced, they've probably already committed their life in some way to understanding that life is more than what we can see and touch and measure. They're already like a giant part of the way toward worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Listen for the power of God to transform people. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it was found and it, was, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You know it's a work of the Lord when revival is breaking out amongst the fortune tellers and amongst all the horoscopers and psychics. That's what's going on. From crystal balls to psychics and astrology and horoscopes and your zodiac sign, people to this day are looking for direction and meaning and insight from things other than God, outside of themselves. Let me tell you one of the strangest ones that I found. One of the strangest ones I read about was parrot astrology. They have parakeets um, picking up fortune cards. So you go to a person, you pay them money, and a parakeet picks your future. And then you base your life on it. Now, here's what's what's fascinating. Um, This sounds really odd and really silly, and who would fall for this? For one single reason. We're not close to this. It's It's always hardest to see the stupidity in the things that you're putting your trust when you're really close to it. If you have people from other cultures come to the Bay Area, they can spot our idols all the time. And we're like, no, 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 that's just a parakeet picking my future. That's not weird. We're like, no, no, it's weird. So this is going on all the time. Don't dabble. Don't dabble in ball, crystal balls. Don't dabble in parakeets. Just enjoy your parakeet as a pet. That's it. Don't look to that pet for guidance. I love that these former dark magic arts people are showing you what their old life was worth. Remember the word rubbish? It's rubbish to them. These valuable books, these dark arts, burn it! Get rid of it all! I don't care what its value is. Christians not only repent, which means change your mind, they renounce. That means they formally abandoned their old life. When you see someone baptized, dead to their old self, and raised to newness of life in Jesus Christ, they are walking a new life. They've renounced their old way. What a beautiful public picture of how much of a treasure Christ is to these, to these new believers who used to live a different way. You know, to fix what is crooked is always costly. I wasn't willing to fix my nose. Because that short-term pain, I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I can still smell okay, which means I'll taste food for the rest of my life. My future wife says it's okay, I'm good. I didn't want to pay that short-term cost for something uh, in the future. How about you? Following Jesus is always costly. It's not one time at the beginning. Following Jesus is always costly. Here's a question for your community group that you can wrestle with this week. 
What is it that you have or maybe should burn? What is it that maybe you should burn? And it's, it's just been too costly. It's been too much of a treasure to you to say, well, I, I can manage it. These guys said, no, we're going to have it burn. All right, lastly, people deviate from worship of God to material things. And that is in itself the problem that people are attached by, attracted by and attached to things. Follow along in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, skip down to verse 25, gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, yeah, you think, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be uh, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Here's what you've come to know personally if you're a Christian today. Here's what you're up against as you open your mouth to share the gospel with people. The gospel messes with your life. The gospel messes with your life. All of it. It undermined their very way of living. These people's protection and prosperity were because of the little G gods. And Paul came along saying that they were powerless and fake. The economy was built around idol-making. The gospel kind of ruins the market for little shrines if you don't need those to bow to and pray to and have protect you. And then how about the sexual ethic? The sexual ethic of Ephesus centered around Artemis, all kinds of temple prostitutes and a whole promiscuous way of, of living that was there. The gospel messes with people's lives. And then, as now, people don't like that unless God's drawing them. In love, God will expose all of these as the false hopes that they are. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, dump your loser former lover and come with me. That's it. There's nothing for you there. It's an all or nothing proposition. Listen to Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Specifically, who was, what was Demetrius' idol? Probably wealth. He brings that up a couple times. He kind of couches it in a little bit of religious stuff, but mainly this is our livelihood. He was serving money. He was using people to gain wealth. And both the devotion and the hate are on display in Ephesus. When Jesus said they'll love the one and hate the other, listen to this. Verse 29, back in Acts 19. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them uh, Paul's companions in travel. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them, catch this, did not know why they had come together. 
This is mob behavior. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis! Just two hours of this! Shouting down the Jew. When I read this, here's what came to my mind. Um, people being shouted down, mobs forming in this city, but confused as to exactly what they are protesting, and bypassing all legal channels and authority. Is this ancient Ephesus, or USA circa 2020, 2021? People are people. Do not believe the lie that ancient, ignorant, simple people wrote the Bible. And it has nothing for us. The Bible over and over exposes the hearts and motives and ways of people. And we look at that and go, wow, we haven't changed. We're no different from this today. Let me close with just ways to guard your own heart and share the gospel with those who have wandered away in their worship. And band, why don't you guys make your way back forward? We have the power, finish the mission. Maybe from Acts 19, I would insert one little thing. We have the power, but it's not of ourselves. Over and over and over, we know this. The way we're activated, the way our children are activated, it's from the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God makes dead things alive. So we have the power, but it's not from ourselves. God's power and path are sufficient to bring people home, and He uses us. So maybe you're one of these three people. You're like, I've wandered into this. I hope today you're hearing the call. Get back on course. Deviate from this and you die. Not right away, but all sin leads to death ultimately. But maybe you say, I have some of these people in my life. How do I connect with them? How do I help them along? How do I share the gospel? Let me give you a mindset that I think covers all three. Here's the mindset. Pray, seek, and engage people as lost rather than so much as being wrong. Engage people as being lost rather than being wrong. You know what happens when you do that? If you engage someone who is lost, your body language, your face, your tone totally alters and changes. When someone is wrong, you want to set them right. Now, is there a time and place for that? Absolutely. But even as you're discussing right and wrong, underneath it all, lost children are wandering away from their good father. God's heart is bring them home. Bring them home. So engaging people, praying for people, seeking people, opening your mouth with people with a mindset that says these people are lost. Not so much wrong. So for the religious, Paul loved the religious people enough to ask insightful questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Then he loved them enough to ask follow-up questions. What did you get baptized into then? So love people enough to find out where they're at. Ask questions. If they say they're a disciple of Jesus, that may not be enough. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple to you? So ask, love them enough to ask a question, and then love them enough to give instruction on how to be saved. This is where it feels risky, doesn't it? 
Maybe, these, maybe they'll turn and bite my head off because they think they already are saved, but they're baptized into a guy named Frank. I don't think that's the way of Jesus at all. They need more instruction. Love them enough to give them instruction and explain things more completely. How about those in your life who are spiritual but not religious? Here's what I would say with that. Many are caught, um, many are caught in this sort of web of spirituality. They've been seeking, they've been pursuing, they're, they're trying to engage the best they can to connect with something bigger and broader than themselves. They're part way to God. They're recognizing that there's more to this life than, than stuff here. I think these people, I know these people actually, would absolutely, utterly melt at the love of Jesus. They've been seeking it in all the wrong places. So how do, how do we engage that? What if we listen to what they are experiencing? Tell me about that. What if we ask them, not so we can hurry up and give them the four spiritual laws, but what if we ask them, how's it working out for you? What if we ask this follow-up question, does this give you any hope for eternity after you die? Really listen and really ask questions. And then just share with them. Tell them that you found a love and a hope that is unshakable and has set you free. Finally, people who are materialistic. We have a lot of people in this world. It's a constant pull in my life. Use people and love things. God's way is completely inverted. Love people and use things. What's going to last forever? People and the Bible. Give yourself to those kinds of things if you want to give yourself to things. So paint this picture of love and beauty and that things that last forever are people and the Bible and paint the picture with your own words and with your own life. There's so many people who think their happiness, their comfort, their hope is one click away from one more thing purchased. One more experience. One click away. If I book now, it's one experience away. That'll get my life back on track. One relationship away. God says, lift your eyes. Would you pray with me? God, Paul said this. He was compelled to engage. That your spirit inside of him actually compelled him to share the gospel. Meaning he felt a a draw that he couldn't even explain. God, uh, you've made that true of us. Would you burn that in us? God, would you fan that into flame even this Sunday? God, that we'd walk away and, and have a burden to engage with people who don't love you, who don't know you, who are lost. In Jesus' name.